So years ago, I heard someone ask the question, who's the goat? And I thought that's kind of a weird question because a goat is not a person. A goat is an animal. So you don't ask who's the goat. You ask where is the goat or what did you do with the goat or put the goat back in the pasture. Well, at some point, somebody explained or I came to understand that the reference to the goat is an acronym. It stands for the greatest of all time. So you might be new to that parlance, but GOAT, especially in athletic terms, means the greatest of all time. So if we're talking about the GOAT of baseball, we would say maybe Babe Ruth. Or if we're talking about American history, we could perhaps say the greatest of all time is George Washington. For basketball, undisputed, it's Michael Jordan. Um, great people are fascinating. The greatest have built up accomplishments that other people have tried, attempted, and failed. They have incredible drive and lots of determination. They have talents that put them on massive display in front of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of people. You hear about some of these people on Instagram and they have millions, 60 million followers. They, they attract attention, they pack out stadiums and then they get the money. They get the luxuries, they get the attention, they get the staff that comes along and serves them. I feel like this is very evident with presidential election seasons. A person is propped up and they become the goat. And the staff comes around them and paves the way for the goat. And massive crowds of not so great people show up to see the great person. And they show up and they wait at the airports or they wait at the stadiums because the goat determines when the event happens. And then the goat determines when the event is finished. It's all centered around the great person. And then there's us. There's us all here this morning. I'm on Instagram, just a little confession. Backstory, Pastor Luke says, be where your kids are. So they're on Instagram. So I'm like, okay, I'm on Instagram. I have like 11 followers, okay? <laughs> I'm not a goat at all. We're all not so great people here. We can't decide when the event starts or when it ends. Other people do for us. We don't decide when the game will start. We have to accommodate our lives around the great people. And yet, we find ourselves often saying, I wish I could be like them. I wish I could be great. The question is, is greatness really about that? And not only that, but after you pass the prime of your life, is there any hope for achieving any kind of greatness? Or are you washed up, put on the shelf? Are you done? Well, a big idea for the sermon this morning is simply this. Jesus serves, I serve. Four words, Jesus serves, so I serve. Where have we been in our study in Mark? <clears throat> Several things to just bring you up to speed by way of review. For the first eight chapters, Jesus has been teaching about who he is. And what we've seen is that he has, from chapter 1, verse 1, been explaining to his disciples and the crowds that he is the Christ, the Son of God. The Christ is the Messiah, the long-awaited King, the Deliverer who is coming for his people. 
And so throughout those eight chapters, he's teaching and performing acts so that people who are following him can say, yes, you are the Christ. And so in chapter eight, we get to this monumental confession with Peter where Jesus asks Peter, who do you say that I am? And for the first time in the gospel of Mark, we hear a person saying, you are the Christ. So now people are starting to get it that Jesus is this great king who has come, the great king who's going to rescue Israel. All right, so chapters one through eight are leading us up to this confession. Now chapters eight through chapters 10 have two different sorts of teaching points. So second, Jesus is talking about what he must do as the Messiah. Chapters one through eight are leading us up to the confession of Jesus being the Messiah. And now he's telling his disciples what he must do as the Messiah. And he predicts his upcoming death. He's going to go to Jerusalem. For the disciples, they do not understand this. Because kings that conquer, great messiahs, don't conquer by death. They're victorious. They live through the fight. And Jesus is unpacking that for us in this section. We'll talk more about it. The third point in this section that we're seeing is that Jesus is following up his prediction about death by teaching how people are to walk in humble discipleship. He's teaching about humble discipleship. So back in chapter 8, when he had talked about his death, he said this, chapter 8, verses 34 and 35. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So this is what a follower of the Messiah looks like. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And so you see that word denial. Here's the Christ. What does it look like to follow the Christ? Humble discipleship. You must deny yourself. Again, in chapter 9, he had made a prediction about his death. And right after that, verse 35, here's the humble discipleship. He said to them, if anyone would be first... He must be last of all and servant of all. And so Jesus is teaching this theme that's consistent. Here's the message about greatness or the language about greatness. Whoever's going to be first, if anyone's going to be great, what must he do? He must be last of all by being servant of all. So what we're seeing here is that greatness is not about imposing other people to fit into our lives. And you think about this for just a moment. As we're seeing Jesus be great, he never used a domineering spirit. He never used a status symbol in order to coerce or force people to follow him. Jesus used compassion. He spoke truth. He came along and served the crowds. And then he left the results to the work of the Holy Spirit. And so what we're seeing is Jesus walk along in greatness here. And what he's doing is he's flipping the secular worldview of greatness upside down. So this morning, we're coming to the final or the end part of chapter 10, the end part of this section, where we're going to see how Jesus would instruct us in what he wants us to be great at. Okay. So point number one to the sermon is simply this, verses 32 to 34. Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. We've seen this pattern twice before. Here's the third and final prediction. 
And what you see in verse 32 is that they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Now, you remember Jerusalem is like the capital city for the Jewish people. It's under the Roman Empire, but that is their main center there. The temple is there. Not only is the temple there, but that's where King David had sat upon the throne. And so for the Messiah who is coming into Jerusalem, he's got to go there because that's where the throne of David has been. So here is Jesus. He's done his ministry up in northern Galilee. He's attracted all kinds of crowds. He's taught his disciples for nearly three years. And now crowds are following him and he's on his way to Jerusalem because this is the moment. This is the moment where the king comes and sets up his kingdom. And so it says that as he's going down to Jerusalem, there's emotion on the part of the people. You see that the disciples are amazed. And you think about this. Here's the 12 who have seen Jesus up close, very personally. They have seen him do all of these mighty acts and these miracles that we've been walking through in chapters 1 through 8. I mean, he was able to make a lame man stand up in front of their eyes and walk. He was able to take a man with a crippled hand and just by the word of his mouth, open up his hand so that it can come back to full use. There were lepers. Nobody could heal a leper. And Jesus came up to lepers and he reached his hand out and touched these individuals. And the disciples were on the front row of all this. He could speak to the wind and just calm it down. What can't he do? I mean, he's the one who can and so here are the disciples. They've seen what he's been able to do. They've heard him teach. They've heard him speak to his highest critics. And every time those Pharisees or religious leaders come and try to pin him to the wall with their words, Jesus responds back with words that make them look foolish. And so here is a great leader. He's strong. He's able to use his words to deflect arguments. And then the crowds... I mean, the crowds are just flocking to Jesus, so he is persuasive in this. And so in all of this, the disciples, they're amazed. Here we go, oh yeah, kind of language. We're going to Jerusalem, and it's our time now. We're going to set up this kingdom. It says in verse 32 that some are afraid. And so here are the crowds that are following Jesus down to Jerusalem. Why would they be afraid? Well, you might have the biggest guy in the fight, but that doesn't mean you're not going to get sucker punched by somebody else. 200 years earlier, you had the Maccabean revolt. You hear of the Maccabees? Judah Maccabees walked into Jerusalem and started a revolution, and it worked, but lots of people died. So here are the crowds that are following him. We might get pinned by the Roman soldiers. So there's all kinds of emotions that are going on while Jesus is going down to Jerusalem. And Jesus turns to those who are packed with emotions, turns to his disciples in verse 33, and he says, See, look, I want you, this to be very clear. Where are we going? We are going to Jerusalem. That's where we're headed right now. And you almost feel the drumbeat of war starting. We're going to Jerusalem. This is going to be it right now. And then he moves on in the second part of verse 33 by identifying once again who he is. And the drumbeat gets louder. He identifies himself as the Son of Man. Now we saw this language last week, but just for review, who is the Son of Man? 
Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, here's the prophecy. Daniel said, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. There's the language there. So the Jews have been holding on to this son of man language. And he came to the ancient of days. So that's another name for God. He came to God the Father here, we could see. And was presented before him. And notice what was given to the Son of Man. The drumbeat gets louder. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Notice his dominion. It's an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So if we were to say Jesus is the Son of Man and he is going to be given dominion and glory... There are several attributes here. There's a global kingdom because it's made up of people from all nations, all peoples and languages. Wow, Jesus is going to Jerusalem and the whole world is going to soon bow down to him? They're amazed. It's global in nature. It's everlasting. It's not going to be destroyed, so it's a victorious kingdom. And here are the disciples who are excited. This is Jesus' identity. He is the Son of Man. He is claiming this about himself. There's also another reality to who Jesus is, and that is his mission. You would not expect these words to follow next. Here we are going to Jerusalem. See, the Son of Man, what would you expect after reading Daniel 7? He is going to whoop up on his enemies and sit on the throne, and the kingdom will be established. That's what you're expecting, right? But he says, no, he will be delivered, and he will be condemned. Then it moves on in verse 33. They will condemn him to death, deliver him over to the Gentiles. Verse 34, they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Okay, so these categories, his identity and his mission, don't seem to mix. Son of man, Daniel 7. Mission, we're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be delivered up. I'm going to be condemned. I'm going to be mocked, flogged, spit upon, and eventually I'm going to be killed. And so the disciples here, they don't They don't get it. I mean, you can speculate, how did they hear this? Maybe they heard Jesus and thought he's speaking in kind of metaphorical terms. Whenever somebody goes to war, you know, they kind of die to themselves. I don't know. We just know they don't get it. How do we know they don't get it? Because of what follows next. Point number two, the wrong perspective of greatness. So Jesus is on the road. In verse 35, James and John, these are the sons of Zebedee. They're also known as the sons of thunder. They've got voices and they know how to use them. And they come up to Jesus. Now, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 20, it's not just these two grown men. It's also their mom that comes up with them. So that adds a little bit of a kind of a picture here. They come up to Jesus and they ask him a question, which is a very bold question. They ask, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, some of you are grandparents. 
And perhaps a grandson or granddaughter who is very young has come up to you and said, Papa, Grandma, I want you to say yes to whatever I ask you. I think every parent has had a kid have something that's cooking up in their little minds and they know that it's not really a great question. So they started off with, we want you to say yes before you even hear the question. And that's what James and John are doing, which makes you wonder, how is it that grown men could actually approach their leader and ask that question? I mean, how many, you look around this auditorium, can you imagine any grown men actually starting a conversation like that? I don't think it's about the men. I think it's about who Jesus has become to them. Jesus has become a person whom they can absolutely trust. Jesus is a leader whom they feel very connected to. And so they know that even in approaching him with this, they're confident that the relationship is not going to be snapped or broken. And so I can imagine Jesus hearing this question and put a smile on his face and saying, okay, my boys, what is it that you really want? And he pulls out their hearts knowing what is there, but he puts it in words so that they can hear their own hearts. And they respond with a very outlandish request. They ask him, it's in verse 37, Jesus, grant us, grant us, just think about it, Jesus, us, two brothers here, what could be better? Grant us to sit. Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Now, what is it that they're thinking about? They're thinking about the Son of Man. They're thinking about the greatness of the Son of Man. They're thinking about the greatness of him coming into Jerusalem, walking into a palace, stepping up on the platform and being able to sit on a throne and all the people all around Israel looking up to Jesus and saying, this is the king. And of course, what does a king need? He needs helpers. He needs a vice president. He needs, you know, some senior cabinet members. And so here is James and John pulling him aside and saying, when it comes, when your glory comes, when all of your glory comes, we ask that we would be able to sit one on your right hand and one on your left. Now, two thoughts about this request. On one hand, it's commendable. You say, how could it be commendable? It's commendable in this sense that they truly believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They truly believe that he is great. They admire him. They respect him. You could even say they worship him. Yet on the other hand, the request is appalling. He's just been telling them about his death. And they're thinking about their greatness. And not only has Jesus been telling them about their death, but in chapters 8 and 9, he has been teaching them about humble service. And all they can think about are being the second and third goats. To them, it's all about glory. It's how people will serve them and look up to them. And then you think about the irony of this. 
Jesus will go to Jerusalem. And in a sense, he will accomplish much glory. And when he accomplishes glory, there will be people on his left and his right. And nobody will want to be on that left cross and on that right cross. So Jesus responds by asking, by saying, you do not know what you are asking, verse 38. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am to be baptized? And they respond saying, yes, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. So just a couple of thoughts here. What's going on in this section? Jesus is talking about the cup and the baptism. What, what is he referring to with the cup and the baptism here? The term cup refers to the wrath of God that is poured out in the Old Testament. Several times you'll see God pouring out his cup. It's mentioned several times there. Most notably, we find it in the New Testament, Luke 22, verse 42, where Jesus prays this prayer, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. It's right before he goes to the cross. He knows that the wrath of God has to be poured out on sinners and someone has to drink from the cup and he's willing to drink for the, from the cup on behalf of sinners. Then there's the term baptism. It refers to the suffering that Jesus is going to be swallowed up by. He's going to be immersed, plunged down into all kinds of suffering that is going to happen. And so Jesus is saying, I have to drink the cup and I have to go through all kinds of suffering are you able to do that? And they say, yes. And Jesus says, actually, you are going to feel it by virtue of your connection with me. And there was John at the foot of the cross, you remember, with Mary, soaking it all in. And in a sense, you could say he was tasting from that cup while he saw Jesus be crucified. Later on, these disciples will all suffer for the name of Jesus as you read through the book of Acts. So here's Jesus explaining once again, here's where I'm going. I have to drink from the cup and I have to go through this baptism and it will be suffering for me. And James and John simply have the wrong perspective of greatness. They think that greatness is going to be them elevated, propped up in society. So we move to point number three. Jesus teaches the real meaning of greatness. In verse 42, Jesus comes back and calls them to himself. And he wants to unpack this truth about greatness. And as we get into this, the language of greatness is often a turnoff to many of us. Because we see greatness in the world and we're saying, I don't even want to walk down that path. I don't want to compete with them for greatness. And our world looks at greatness and we see the entertainers and, and they're propped up as great. And we're like, forget it. I'd rather live, you know, behind the bleachers in a cave somewhere rather than center stage. I don't want any of that. So I know that for many of you, when we talk about greatness, you're like, that just doesn't resonate with me. Okay, we have to think about it in this way. We have to think about it in God's perspective that God has a understanding of greatness 
that he desires you to walk in. A perspective of greatness that is unlike anything in the world that we're going to learn here in a moment. And it's not you trying to achieve some sort of step on the ladder where you're above people. That's not what he's talking about. This kind of greatness that Jesus is talking about is the greatness that he appreciates, the greatness that resonates with his heart. If you were following Jesus, you would say, I want to be like Jesus. That's great. So what do we learn here? Well, in verse 42, he says, You know that those who are considered the rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them. This is how greatness looks in the world. The lords of the Gentiles, the, the Herodians, the Roman rulers, they use their power in very heavy-handed ways. They use their rulership to dominate over people so that they get the results that they desire. And that's the way that we can perceive greatness. And, and it's kind of ugly to us. It's repulsive in some sense. Using power and influence to attain your desired results. We're like, yuck, I don't like that. And the disciples had the same guttural reaction that you are having right now to that. They don't want that either. They don't like that. So what is it that we are to lean into? Here's the biblical view of greatness. Jesus says, it will not be that way among you. This is not who you are going to be. And so he continues on in the middle of verse 43 with a strong contrast. It's going to be this way. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. So if we read verse 43 again, but it shall not be so among you. This is the true statement. This is like this true identity for Christ's followers. It will not be that way among you. So for those of you who may have this sort of ear that is bent towards secular greatness, all right, if you're sitting here and you're like, man, I really want to be at the top of the ladder. I really want the attention. I really want the notoriety. Jesus says, no, that kind of greatness will not be so among you. And so if you're wrestling with that, I want you to think of that as a dish in our house this last week that fell and it cracked. We have to take that view of greatness and say, that is not right, it needs to be smashed. And people in God's family, in Christ's family, in this church, we cannot look at ourselves as the world looks at themselves among ourselves. Like, when we come in here, it is not about people being great at all. We have to take that and just say, that is done. That is so ungodly. It is so not true. And so if I look at other people and prop them up and say, now you're great. You have just followed, fallen into what Jesus said. It must not be so among you. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're all there at the foot of the cross with Christ. There isn't anybody who gets to stand on their own merits and we prop them up and say, now you're great. Not even me. Sometimes the pastor gets this elevation. I understand I have to lead. But we are all brothers and sisters. We're all family before Christ. And Jesus says, it's not going to be this way among you. Okay. So if it's not going to be that way, how is it going to be? And Jesus makes a strong pivot 
And he turns and he says, okay, adversely now, in contrast to what I've just said, what is it going to be like among you? Here's how it's going to be among you, the middle of verse 43. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. So we're following Jesus to Jerusalem. We're admiring him as the son of man. And he is saying, this is what it is like for all of the people who are in my wake behind me, for all of those who are going to be Christ followers, for all of those who are going to place their faith in me. Here are the labels that really characterize you as an individual, servant and slave. And what's he doing with that? It's not that we're going to be taken advantage of and beaten down or anything like that. What he's saying is that servants and slaves don't have eyes for themselves. They see the needs that are right in front of them. And a good servant, a good slave is going to go forward and is going to work on that need, is going to serve that need, is going to help meet the needs of other people. The true servant doesn't sit back with his or her arms crossed and say, now who's going to do it for me? The true servant doesn't sit back and say, I deserve something better. A servant thinks of himself or herself in very humble ways. And what is humility? Thinking of yourself less and less. It's not about me. It's not about us. And so the mindset that Jesus says, this is what greatness is, actually being freed from yourself, not to have to think about yourself, not to have to think about what I deserve or what I want. What is Jesus getting at here? He's saying that in his kingdom, the new norm for greatness is not human glory, but it's in serving and meeting the needs of others. In Jesus' kingdom, this spiritual reality where he enters into our lives and he becomes our king, greatness is not about what I can do to make myself happier, more comfortable, and more relaxed. And you're like, well, are servants just joyless? No, in Christ's kingdom, the servants are filled with joy because they're not thinking about themselves all the time. In following Jesus into this new way of life, we live by a different ethic that is carried out by a servant's view of ourselves. I'm here with eyes for others. I'm here to serve others. And then the question is, why? Why would we do this? Why would we have a servant's heart or servant's eyes? Well, Jesus explains in verse 45. And he starts off with the word for. And so if you like words, that little word is important. It simply connects everything that he has said previously to what he's going to say now. And you could say all of that has been propped up in the air and you're looking at all of that that's propped up in the air and you're saying, how did it get here? How, how did this whole idea get here? Well, let me tell you, for, let's look at the ground underneath of it. He says, even the Son of Man. Now remember that title. We talked about it earlier. What does the Son of Man convey? It conveys a sense of greatness. It conveys a sense of authority and kingliness from Daniel chapter 7. Now what did the Son of Man do? You notice the next word. The Son of Man came. And so now the Son of Man is moving in a direction. 
And what's the direction that he's moving in? He came not to be served, not to ascend steps and sit on a throne so that everybody would come and say, wow, you're great. The Son of Man isn't coming with that mentality of being at the center of everything. What did he come to do? The Son of Man came and moved in a direction to serve. And here's Jesus going to Jerusalem. And he's going to Jerusalem not to sit on a throne. He's going to Jerusalem to hang on a cross. And as he hangs on the cross, he is going to accomplish the greatest act of humility, of service, that's ever taken place. The next statement. And to give his life as a ransom for many. When you think about a ransom, you're thinking about money that's handed over for the sake of somebody else's release. It's not money in this case. It's the Son of Man, the Great One, coming to Jerusalem to hang on a cross to give his life. His life is being given over. There's an act of service. My life is being given over. I'm not preserving. I'm emptying my life here. And Jesus goes to the cross and gives his life as a ransom for many. And so you may be a non-Christian here, and you're like, what is this all about? What Jesus is explaining here is that he is going to go into Jerusalem to hang on a cross so that the cup that we talked about earlier, the cup of God's wrath that is going to be poured out on sinners in just judgment, that cup is going to be poured out from heaven in judgment against sinners. And what Jesus does as the Son of Man is he says, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to drink the cup. It's coming into me. And I'm going to serve all of you so that you don't have to drink from that poison cup. I'm going to take the cup of God's wrath upon me at the cross. And there's Jesus hanging on the cross, swallowing up the wrath of God for our sins that we deserved. There's Jesus going to Jerusalem. There's Jesus serving. There's Jesus saying, I'm coming to meet a need. And it's not about me standing back, folding my arms and saying, you know, aren't I great? It's Jesus who is serving here. And so as Christians, we look at Jesus who went to Jerusalem and hung on the cross and we say, there's no one else who could have stood in that place for me. He served and he met the need in a way that I never could have. And so as Christians, we look at Jesus and we see the Son of Man going to serve and we say, thank you. If you're a non-Christian here this morning, you need to come to Jesus. You need to come to Jesus as the one who has served you. He is your Savior. You have committed the same sins that I've committed. And what you need, though, is to come under Jesus in faith and say, I accept you as the Savior who took the cup of God's wrath for me. And there's where salvation takes place, where Jesus died for you as a sinner. So the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's all of us. Jesus came and served all of us. You think about the humility that took place in John chapter 13, where Jesus came to his disciples with the towel and the bowl and humbly served them. And you can imagine the disciples feeling a little uncomfortable in the sense that we've never been served like this. But the flip side is, who are we to be arrogant now after 
our great Savior has served us in this way. I imagine the disciples responding like that. And now here are we where we see Jesus going to the cross and we see him serving us in this way. Who are we to be arrogant? Who are we to step back and say, eh, I'm not going to? So let's just think about applications for a moment. As we think about this third and final prediction of Jesus, let me just say this. We need to meditate on the truth that Jesus has served you. He has served me. This is truly an amazing thought. The Son of Man came to serve you. The most important, most respected person in your life showed up. If they showed up tomorrow at your house, the most important person, CEO of your company, probably never met him or her, principal at your school, the boss whom you work for showed up at your front door this week and said, hey, I'm here to serve. You would look around for the cameras and say, what's the catch? I don't want to be the fool here because this isn't what happens. You'd wonder if it's a joke. Those things don't happen in the world. Yet here is Jesus, the most important person to ever walk the face of the earth. God the Son taking on human flesh, coming to us in our need and saying, I'm here to serve. And so 1 Corinthians 15.3 says that Christ died for our sins. Here's how he served. Galatians 1, he gave himself for our sins. We desperately need him to serve us, and he did. So you think about a parent who brings a young child home from the hospital. There's all kinds of needs that the baby has. Needs to be fed, needs to be changed, needs to be clothed, bathed, coddled. If that baby insists on serving mom and dad rather than mom and dad serving her or him, she's going to die. She absolutely needs the greater to serve the lesser. We all need Jesus to serve us, and this is what he did. Jesus served you. Jesus served you by removing the sins from your account before God. Meditate on how this truth should shape my life then. When you look at the greatness of Jesus, you see him moving towards the need. And here, are we, here we are, and we have this posture a lot of times of self-protection and self-preservation. And God puts people into our lives who have deep needs, deep relational needs, deep spiritual needs, deep gospel needs. And yet, we have this self-preservation sort of in the back of our minds. And here Jesus is saying, not so among you. Not so among you. Whoever's going to be great must become the servant of all. And I think about this in terms of the different relationships that we have. Again, I think about our church context. I think, what, what does it look like for a church to grow in Mark 10.45? What does it look like for a church family to approach one another, not with, is somebody going to meet this need, but here I am, and here I see a need, and here's Jesus who's out in front of me, and I can step into that, and I can help with that need. The last thing that I want people to hear right now is just do more. 
But that's not what this text is saying. The text is saying, who are you and how are you looking at other people? This transforms the way that we look at marriage. To follow Jesus into marriage, husbands, means how would Jesus respond to my wife right now? How would he aim to serve her in this moment right now? And I know sometimes us dudes, we can get all in a huff and all in a puff because, man, my expectations just were not met. You know, you know, those kinds of selfish mentalities creep in. We're like, well, life would sure be a lot better if she just learned how to do it my way. Some of you are chuckling because you know how that goes. And yet Jesus says, not so among you. Not so. We serve. And so we come home from work and we pour our lives out in serving so again, illustration with the family. You can't share this with my youngest. I was rebuked in a good way. And I didn't even say anything about it. We were watching a movie Friday night. And I'm kind of into the movie and I'm enjoying this. And our youngest is saying, I don't get anything that's going on. I don't get anything that's going on. And, uh, you know, there's the first comment of, well, come on, bud. You'll, you'll, you'll catch it. You'll, you'll be all right. Again, I don't get anything that's going on, and I'm more into the movie than I was earlier, so I really don't want any distractions. And so in that moment, third time comes up, I just, I didn't like lose it, but I just had enough. And my words were, well, I'm sorry, you're just going to have to sit through it. And then there was another servant in the room, and the servant said, Hey, Seth, why don't you come over here and sit next to me? And Seth walked over there, sat next to that servant. And throughout the movie, I hear whispering going on. And the whispering is, here's what's happening in the movie now. Here's what's taking place. And all of a sudden, his eyes start to open up, and he starts to enjoy the moment. Here's serving, like within the family context. Here's dad sitting on the chair saying, Leave me alone. This is all about me right now. And rebuked because here's what service looks like. I think that there is room for our marriages and our families to be transformed men by us following Jesus more faithfully and serving. This transforms our identity. So many people are measuring the significance of lives by the standard of the world's glory. How high am I on the ladder? How much am I getting out of this job? Are people applauding my efforts and recognizing me as being great? And so, so many people just want their life to count. Somewhere around the age 38, It's like people are like, what am I doing with my life? How am I going to leave the world different than when I came into it? And I don't see like I'm going anywhere. I'm just spinning my wheels. And what's happened is you have a very secular perspective of greatness. I have to leave my imprint so that I'm noticed. I have to achieve some sort of greatness. And Jesus is like, wait a second. You've got the wrong perspective. What needs to take place is I've put people all around you 
And now you walk as I would walk. You walk through this not so that they would applaud you. You walk through this and you hear the needs that they are working through. You say, okay, I want to meet and serve that need. I see that person. I don't have to preserve myself. I can go over there and empty myself and serve them by talking to them and being an encouragement to them. I can love my family. I can love the people at work. When we get this, it transforms the way that we see ourselves because Jesus sees us differently now. He doesn't see us. We're not called to be great. We're called to serve. Flips everything upside down about being number one in the world's eyes. And so we just conclude with where we started. Here's Jesus, the Son of Man. He is the greatest of all time. And yet we see what he did. Jesus serves, therefore I serve. Let's pray.